And then he says, like, I hate you. Like, he's just sitting there, he's wrestling. You know, the Old Testament shows Jacob wrestling with God. He says, I won't let go of you until you bless me. In the Jewish tradition, there's a sense of, like, you wrestle with God. You argue, you fight, you struggle. It's like, and God can handle that. And so we see with this passage, Jesus starts off by telling his disciples, he says, pray that you, that you do not fall into temptation. So earlier in Luke, this is, a, this is the Lord's Prayer according to Luke. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins, for we are also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And so right off the bat, Jesus is like saying, like, this is what we do. This is how we pray. And I was seeing all this idea of entering into the cave. Beginning, I found this quote from The Hobbit. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. Thinking about how true this is to life so often, whatever big thing you're going to do, the big thing almost happens before the big thing happens. If that makes any sense. It's like that decision to say like, okay, I will go through with this or I will see this. In fact, it's not the, the big thing the night before. I remember the, the day before I got married, I remembered I didn't sleep the whole night before because I was just thinking about just like the gravity of the situation. Like this is bigger than I was. This is like more amazing. This is more complex. This is more difficult. Like I had no idea what I was stepping into, but I knew up until that point, it was, it was like the bravest thing I was going to do. And it was stepping into this unknown, this unbelievable whatever it was. I mean, the actual day of the marriage was like the easy part. It's like you just have to like follow the, the script, you know, like they tell you all, like the guys like, in fact, this is for, especially for guys, right? You just repeat after me. I'll tell you what you need to say. You just say it, right? It's like, uh, but the night before I remember just like staying up all night being like, uh, am I ready? Like, can I do this? Like, what are the stakes here? Like, this is a lot. Like, I'm, I'm very nervous. Uh, but you can't like say any of that in the wedding ceremony. It makes everyone else very uncomfortable. So you have to get it out the night before. Uh, but I love that line. It says, uh, there was nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone. And it says here that Jesus, he goes off about a stone's throw away. Seeing about like, that's such a great, great line showing us how the really brave things in life that we have to do, they're going to feel like we have to do them on our own at first. Whenever you want to step out and do something new, dream some new dream or conquer some new thing, it feels like at first for you at least that you're the only one that's ever gone through this experience. My wife and I were talking about this. Like we had the hardest week of parenting we have had thus far. Our two-year-old is just like King Kong size right now. Like everything is mine. She just throws tantrums, and you're just like, you're just like I. If I had known this, you know, we might not have had a child. Like whenever she's acting this way, it's like you will never have a sibling. Like you know, this is like what we're. And it's like it was like a hard week of parenting. It was like a it was a hard week of marriage. Like it was all difficult and. My wife and I, we were like, at several points, like, why didn't anyone tell us about this? Like, why didn't, and then, and then at one point we were laughing, we're like, someone probably did, and we just couldn't hear it. Like, so often people be like, this is how it's going to be, but sometimes you just, you can't go through something until you experience yourself. Like, there's certain things you, like, you have to go through in some ways on your own. You have to go through them alone. And you see Jesus, like, bravely like, leave this close group of people that he loves. And he even says, like, please keep praying for me. Like, I'm going to have to go do this thing alone, but please stay awake. Please pray for me. And he goes off by himself, and he starts praying. 
There's this beautiful passage. It's pray without ceasing. And I was reading that apparently in the Greek, that verse is actually the shortest verse in the Bible. So we always say like Jesus wept is the shortest verse. But in Greek, pray without ceasing is the shortest verse. And I was thinking on this idea of like, when we think of pray without ceasing, this doesn't mean that you walk around saying the Lord's prayer in your head every day. It's this idea of like, you're in constant communion. You're constantly in touch. And this is what you see throughout the whole ministry of Jesus is, and this is what's so often upsets the Jewish leaders is he's saying like, I and the Father am one. Like I do nothing apart from my Father. Like a vine can bear no fruit unless it is connected to the source. And so Jesus goes off to be by himself. And I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. Waking and sleeping, it doesn't change God. It changes me. And I think, so I was preparing for this lesson. I was telling Hannah, originally I had, I had found a, a clip from The Office. I love that show, and I thought maybe we'd do something a little bit lighter and more fun. But then as I was spending more time with this material, I just realized that it just wasn't as fitting or as appropriate. That sometimes uh, it's, it's a sin to bring levity to something that is serious. And I was thinking about this idea of prayer changing me. And I remember probably, probably the hardest thing for me, one of the times I felt most brave was, my parents got divorced when I was a sophomore in high school. I remember just absolutely being shell-shocked by the experience. I remember just being blindsided by the fact that it happened. I remember often a lot of my friends, had, their parents had gotten divorces. I remember thinking, like, this will never happen to me. And then it did, and I was so surprised by it and so shocked by it. I remember, like, that night it happened. And then, like, every subsequent night, I just prayed, like, God, please get them back together. Like, please get them back together. Like, that was like bargaining. I was doing like all the stages of grief. I was like, whatever it is, you know, like I'll do it. Like, please just do what it takes to get them back together. And we're like praying this. And then there was this like incredibly heartbreaking point when like I realized that that's not like the right thing to pray. And so I started just praying this like simple prayer. And it's the one we find right here. And it's where God says, your will be done. Your will be done. It's this sense of like letting go, letting up on control. I remember I stopped trying to pray for my parents to get back together because like I wasn't God and that wasn't something that could possibly be achieved or understood. And so it was letting go. And this week when I was at Trader Joe's, it was, it was so interesting. One of my favorite writers, Anne Lamont, she says, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. And so I was sitting in Trader Joe's and I was like scanning groceries and this girl came through my line and uh, she only had like one tattoo and it was on her bicep. And uh, she just happened to like reach, like she did this like to her person and then I could like see it for a second. And it said, thy will be done. And I was like, oh, man. And I was like, hey, I'm teaching a class this Sunday and like that's what I'm talking about. And she said, yeah, this is a lesson I constantly need reminded of. And I was like, don't we all? Like, don't we all? Don't we all struggle with that sense of your will be done? So Luke 22, 41 through 44 says, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. C.S. Lewis also said, We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. I was reading about a famous psychologist, and before he would sit down with each person in a session, he would say to himself, I am enough. He said, I'm not perfect, but I am enough because that is exactly what they need right now, is for me to be enough, and that's all I can be. He said, I am enough to feel the feelings that they are feeling, to experience the pain that they are experiencing. He said, to be perfect would not be enough. He said, but I can be enough for this person. 
And what I love about the God that we worship in Christianity is a God that can handle this kind of thing. A God that can handle it, that can see it. So in this scene, and I love it because it's only in Luke's account. And if you look at the text, sometimes it says like these verses are not in some of the older transcripts. But it says that Jesus is, is so worked up. He's so upset by this. It says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So I think back to that scene in the movie Signs where the boy is having this asthma attack and he can't breathe. And the father, like this father, is powerless. He doesn't have the medicine. He can't do anything. But he stays with him in the pain and the suffering of it all. And this is to me almost like the only promise that God seems to have for us. Is sometimes it's not that God will come back and change and make things better. It's just that God will sit and hold you during the suffering too. Like last November, I, I, was, uh, I was in the living room and my wife asked me, she was like, did something happen to this family? And uh, I was like, I don't, it was a family that uh, we had gone to church with and like I had taken their son on, on a youth group mission trip. And I was like, I don't know, like what's going on? She's like, well, there's something on like Facebook here. And I looked and like the, the boy was like in a car accident. He was, he was killed. And uh, that was like the first time I'd like been surprised by a death like that, you know? And it was this moment of being like, like, I wanted more than anything for that to not happen. And there's like no words that can be said that would make me feel better. There's nothing that could be done that would take away that pain. Like the only thing that like I was looking for was someone that would like hold me like as I just wept uncontrollably. You know, like there's these moments where like the pain is so severe when things are so hard. But what you're looking for is just someone to hold you and say like, I am with you in this. Like, I am holding you, like, as like Mel Gibson said, like, you and I are the same. Like, there's a line in a, a novel I love where it says uh, this bishop has just lost his wife and he's at a bar talking to, like, a former member of his congregation. And he's talking about, like, how strange and how tragic life is. And the man from his congregation goes, I think that's what the cross symbolizes, that God comes alongside us screaming. That, like, the God of the universe screams with us. That the God of the universe cries with us. So you see in this moment, the cup isn't taken from Jesus. Like he's still in the innermost cave and he still knows what's ahead of him. But he has angels minister to him. He has God sit beside him and say, I'm with you. I saw this, this picture. I took a screenshot of it. But there's, the Native Americans have this tradition of leaving a blemish in one corner of the rug they are weaving. So they weave these giant, beautiful rugs. And then at the very corner, they'll leave this old blemish. And it's because that's where they believe the spirit enters. Believe in that, the flawed spot, the part where things are wounded, the part where things hurt. And I, I saw this quote I want to share with you. It said, um, I want desperately for things, should be for things to go how they're supposed to, which is another way of saying how I want them to, which is another way of saying according to my plan. And that, as we all know, isn't how it works. Like I mentioned before, suffering is any moment you're out of control. And so today, like, as I mentioned, like, we were driving and this car was going so slow, so infuriatingly slow. I was like, I'm going to be late for class. And I was like trying to be calm. I was like practicing breathing techniques. I was like, just breathe in, breathe out. And finally, I was like, all right, dude. And I said, come on, dude. And then my two-year-old on the back went, come on, dude. And I was like, yeah, I'm teaching her well. You know, so I thought, I was like, 
But I was like, I was frustrated because things weren't going how I thought they were supposed to go. But it's in that disappointment and that confusion and that pain that comes from things not going how I wanted them to that I find the same thing happening again and again. I come to the end of myself. I come to the end of my strength, the end of my understanding, only to find that the place of powerlessness is a place of strength and a place of peace that I did not realize was there before. And we as humans, we have this tendency of if something continues to work for us, we will keep using and keep relying on that fuel source for as long as we can. But the moment it stops, the moment whatever thing runs out, we are forced to look deeper and to go into something beyond ourselves. So like every time I suffer, every time I feel like the rug in some way is pulled out from underneath me, I find that there's something like deeper and truer for me to access and pull from. I realize like my suffering is not alone, but then also that I'm not expected to do this on my own, that the things I'm supposed to draw from are beyond myself. Catherine of Aragon, she said, none get to God except through trouble. And there's this last point I want to, to point out in this, this text, and it says, When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The first couple of times I was reading this, like it just seemed, I don't know, I couldn't figure it out, but then I realized the writer did something really interesting. He says that, when he came back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Like in the other accounts, the apostles fall asleep, and it's almost as if they're just like bored and tired. Like, why did Jesus pull us out of here? But this text says that they were exhausted from sorrow. Like, they were also upset. Like, and I was thinking sometimes you're interacting with a friend and you have no idea what's going on, but you can just see the pain in their eyes, the pain that they're carrying. And, and you decide to be with them, even though you don't understand the pain, even though you can't gravitate with it. You just decide, okay, in some way I will be here for you. And this passage says that, that they were exhausted from sorrow. Not exhausted from being up late, not exhausted because they were bored, like they were exhausted because they were sad. Like they felt this sadness, this pain, the sorrow. I was thinking about how we've talked about before, like the call to repentance is always just the call to wake up to what's going on. And if you like want to know what the message of Jesus is, then like look at the fact that every time someone was hurting, every time someone was sick, every time someone was poor, every time someone is downtrodden, that's the group that Jesus seems to side with. Some theologians say that Jesus has a preferential treatment for the poor. And so you see in this passage, Jesus like once again this call to wake up. Like wake up again. Wake up and see. And I I was thinking about how we all sleep in so many various different ways. Like, we all find some way to fall asleep. Like, sometimes it's just like the literal, we just sleep through things, whether it's a class. And then sometimes, and I was thinking about this too, sometimes we just try to distract ourselves and entertain ourselves. We try to look at other things. I was wondering if anyone else has ever had this interaction, but like, you pull up to a, a stoplight and maybe you're like the first or second car. And there's a contributor salesman, and you realize like you don't have like any one dollar bills, and I like in discomfort like don't make eye contact because I don't want them to know like I don't have anything to give, and I've reached this like awkward place of like not wanting to like kind of pay attention, like I don't want to see them, so like I look away, like I pull out my phone, I like pretend like I'm busy, like oh this red light is so fascinating, you know, when it's just because like I feel bad because this person 
is suffering or has less than I do in some way, like, and I can't give, like, I can't help. And so we find this way of distracting. And I remember it's always been a dream of mine to go to New York City, and I think it was the year after college I finally got to go. And the main reason I wanted to go is because my mom's an artist, and she grew up painting, and she taught me a love of painting. And the Museum of Modern Art in New York City has Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night. And so I got to go to the Museum of Modern Art, and I remember I, I just, like, a, a fifth-grade schoolboy, like, sprinted up every flight of stairs till I got in front of the painting, and there it was. And sometimes you have those moments where you have really high expectations for a thing, and then you get to it, and it's completely disappointing. Like, it's smaller than you thought it was, or there's less color. And then sometimes you have super high expectations for this thing, and you get to it, and you realize, like, you just didn't have high enough expectations. And that's how it was when I got to this painting. Like, the globs of paint were just so thick on it. I was like, I mean, it was like he just threw paint on it. And there's this, like, yellow swirls. And I just, I was like, I'm in love, you know? This is it. And I just remember that I sat down in front of this painting, which you're not supposed to do. And I just started sketching. And I remember the security guard giving me this look like, are you, like, a threat? Do I need to be worried about you? And I just, I didn't care. Like, I just sat there and sketched this painting. Probably after, and and what was interesting is people would, like, come, and they would see the painting for a couple seconds and then, like, move on. They like check it off to their list that they saw it. And I remember I got up and I looked over the security guard. I said, thank you. Thank you for letting me sit there. This means a lot. It's been a lifelong dream of mine. And he said, most people just come to say they've seen it. And he said, but you looked at it. He said, and I was cool with that. I was like, right on, my man, right on. Uh, and so that night, um, I remember seeing something just incredibly beautiful, incredibly transformative, something moving. So that night, my buddy and I, we decided, okay, if you go to New York, you got to go to Times Square. So I went to Times Square, and it is, if there is on one end of the spectrum the starry night, then the other end of the spectrum is Times Square, okay? So we got there, and we went at night, and it was just fluorescent, bright, like, gross lighting. Like, it's just all these advertisements. Like, there's, like, a 500-foot Abercrombie and Fitch, you know, screen of this guy, like, shirtless. And you're like, why am I looking at this? You know, like, it's just there, and there's, like, movie trailers and flashing lights and traffic and noise and... And a buddy of mine, we'd, we'd gone to this restaurant, and then my friend had, like, convinced me we should, like, get a cigar, and we should, like, go smoke in Times Square. So we're sitting at this table. I'm, like, kind of feeling cool, but also, like, kind of overwhelmed by stuff. And, and I don't smoke cigars, and I didn't know that, like, what would happen if you smoked a whole cigar, which I did. And then, I, like, five minutes later, I just started feeling real bad. Like, at first, I just felt, like, this nice, like, calm buzz, and then all of a sudden, my stomach just started, like, becoming like the Barnum and Bailey circus. Like it just started like twisting and swirling. And all of a sudden all the lights started just like pulsing, like out of rhythm, out of sync. And, and I just remember in, in the middle of Times Square, thousands upon thousands of people, I just know I'm about to just hurl. And I was like, this has now become like the worst day of my life. Like it went from the best to the worst very quickly. And I remember just like bending over and I'm just like covering and the worst part was, like, I could not get away from the sensory overload. Like, if I ran for blocks, I would still, like, hear the noise, still be surrounded by people. Like, and I was just, like, sitting there. I was like, there's nowhere to go right now. Like, I just have to suffer in Times Square in front of all of these people. And there's, like, people walking by, like, oh, look at that guy. Like, he's suffering. I'm like, so bad. I'm suffering so bad. And I was thinking about one of my favorite poets, the poet Rumi says, like, why in the whole wide world did you fall asleep in this prison? And I was sitting there, like, 
like a prison of my own making. And I was thinking about how often we like just distract ourselves so we don't have to like see like the painful things going on. And sometimes, and this is I think what's even harder, some of the things that hit me this week, sometimes I distract myself from having to feel the painful things that are going on underneath and inside. So I just, I had a friend once, he called it water skiing. Because here's the thing about water skiing, as long as you keep moving, you stay above the water. But the moment you stop moving, you sink. And so I'm a master at being busy. Is anybody else, like, I come shout, like, I'm a black belt in busyness. Like, I can just keep busy all day and not have to feel, like, a single thing that I want to feel. And then you have those moments, you know, where, like, you get stuck at a light or you're, like, you have, like, a 10-minute break at work and there's nothing, like, you get isolated, your phone dies. You know, it's the worst thing that could happen. So you're, like, my phone's dead. Who am I? Your phone, like, dies and you're, like, what do I do? And then you start to, like, like oh, man, I, I don't like the way that this feels about what this coworker said to me earlier. It's like, I don't like the way I said something to this coworker earlier. You start kind of realizing like all the external stuff that like the internal stuff that's going on that's like trying to get out. You start realizing like, oh, this, this pain inside, I've got to do something with it. I have to feel it, I have to give it space to move, to, to roll about. And Jesus is calling us to like wake up. Wake up to the suffering going on around us. Wake up to the suffering going inside of us. And then I love this passage. It says, and know that you're not alone. Your suffering is not alone. I once went to this conference and like the speaker, he, he asked, he said, everyone raise, stand up if you've been affected by cancer. And everyone stood up. It was just this powerful moment of looking out and realizing like how much solidarity there was. And I was like, because we've all suffered in a certain way, we also have this connection. And like suffering has a way of uniting people that just like nothing else does. One of my favorite people, Mr. Rogers, he once asked his mom, he said, what do you do when you see horrible things on the television? What do you see when you see catastrophe? And his mom said, look for the helpers. There's always these brave souls rushing back into the fire, rushing back into the danger, helping. Look for the helpers. That has always stayed with me because once you've suffered even a little bit and allowed yourself to feel it, you then have this opportunity, as Henry Nowen called it, to become a wounded healer, to step out and to start helping people because you hurt. And you realize that if you hurt, then no one else should have to hurt to the extent you did. So you want to step in. What's interesting, whenever I talk to people that have like been through a divorce in any way, like it's compassion that I feel for them. It's not like anger. It's not frustration. It's not the sense of... it's. I want to help. And if I can't help, I just want to sit with you in it. I want to feel what you're feeling a little bit if I can. Jesus says, like, come to me for my, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Jesus says, like, I'll help you carry these things. I'll shoulder them. I'll be with you in them. I want to end with this one thought, and then uh, we're going to go through our spiritual discipline. But... Uh, Having a little girl, like we have to try to find like age-appropriate movies. And as I mentioned last week, we've been watching like Kung Fu Panda movies, which are awesome. Like if you haven't watched them, they're like quickly moving to like top 10 for me. But uh, we were watching this re- most recent one and it was really great. So the Poe the Panda is talking to Master Shifu. Uh, I've seen these movies a lot. I know all the characters' names. Uh, and he's, uh, in the second one, his goal is to achieve inner peace. And he says, He's asking his master, he goes, how do you achieve inner peace? And he goes, you can either spend 30 years in a cave meditating 
or you can go through a great deal of suffering. And then Poe goes, is there like a shortcut, you know? And then, uh, and then I love it because the master goes, when I met you, Poe, it was the worst day of my life. And then he was like, by far. <laughs> and uh, he's like, but out of that suffering, like I'm able to learn. And there's this really cool part where like, he, uh, I wish we had a video of it, where he, uh, he like drops a rain, like a water drop falls and he like catches it without breaking it and does this beautiful motion, like places it on like a flower petal. So I've started with my daughter. I'm like, Sailor Grace, let's do inner peace. And I go really slow and my daughter just goes, <laughs> like that's her version of inner peace. Uh, and so, but there's a really cool moment I was thinking of where like towards the end of the movie, he realizes this thought of like, he has to allow the things that he feels to like come through him and he has to give space to it to become a conduit. But then eventually he like lets the thing itself go and he drops into a flower petal. I was seeing the idea of water like, it brings life to this thing. So he takes the thing that ultimately would have hurt him and like gives it on. And when you start adeptly like handling the way you've suffered, the way you've hurt, that suffering doesn't become something that has burned you. It becomes like a solve towards other people. So you take the thing that brought you the most pain and then you move it in such a way that as you apply it towards other people, you're able to help heal them, to take care of them. One of my favorite authors, he said, we have this choice. We can either transfer pain or we can transform it. And so when you suffer in life, you have this opportunity where you can just like collide into the next person and the next person and the next person. Or you can take this pain and move in such a way that you say, no one will feel this way and I won't pass it on. And that's ultimately how things stop. Jesus, and we'll talk about this next week, Jesus exposes the myth of redemptive violence on the cross and shows the truth of redemptive suffering. Jesus takes all the pain and stops it with himself and says like, no more, and then moves on. So we're going to end class this morning. It's called censoring prayer. And so the way this is going to work is I'm going to like read through and I want you all to repeat. And then the idea is to just to kind of like ground you and focus you back to bring you to this present moment. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll read a line and then I'll have you all repeat. And we're going to end class just a little bit differently today than we normally do. That's how I was thinking on this. So I'm going to read this passage and then we'll work through it. And then when we're done, you just leave quietly. And you can stay as long as you want to sit and process this. And when you're ready, just quietly leave. And we'll leave class today in silence. Sometimes it's good. I once heard a phrase that said, uh, Silence is the language of God. All else is a poor translation. Sometimes to be quiet. So repeat after me. Be still and know, be still and know that, I that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know.
be still. Be.